Remember when you were a kid and someone asked how old you were? It wasn't enough to say, I'm six. You said, I'm six and a half, or I'm almost seven. That's how it is with our church right now. Our church on this day is right around 174.3 years old, and we're on the way to being 175. Next May 5th will be our 175th anniversary, and we've already started our celebration. In the spirit of that anniversary celebration, my message today is about the history of our congregation. Now, I'm not going to try to explain everything that happened in the last 174 years. You're probably relieved to hear that. But as the chalice lighting words reminded us, change is the basic law. So I'm going to start by looking at how two key aspects of our church have changed over the years, and then I'll share a few thoughts about how those changes affected us. The first aspect I want to look at goes by various names, theology, belief system, faith, religious or spiritual outlook, whatever it's called, this aspect is what defines us as a religious organization rather than a fitness center or a rock band or some other kind of group. I'm going to call it a belief system, but you can think of it using whatever term appeals to you. So let's start at the beginning. On May 5th, 1843, a traveling Universalist preacher named Aaron Kinney came to Peoria. He spoke that evening in a candlelit room at the Peoria Courthouse, in the same square where the courthouse stands today. After Reverend Kinney spoke, 37 people decided to form the Universalist Society of Peoria. Eventually this became known as the Universalist Church, and later on the Universalist Unitarian Church. So what did Universalism mean in 1843? Well, back then, Universalists were Christians. The founders of our church believed in God and Jesus Christ. But they had a particular belief system that set them apart from many other Christians. Universalists thought it was inconceivable that a loving God would punish anyone with eternal torture in hell. Even today, we sometimes call our church the no-hell church. The oldest document in our church archives is the 1858 Constitution of the Universalist Society of Peoria. It stated that the society's source of highest truth was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It also included the statement of beliefs that the National Universalist denomination had adopted in 1803. Among other things, it says, we believe there is one God whose nature is love, revealed in one Lord Jesus Christ by one Holy Spirit of grace, who will finally restore the whole family of mankind to holiness and happiness. Now, as you listen to those words, you may have been thinking, hey, wait a minute, that's Trinitarian, and it, it is. It mentions God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. 
Remember, our church started as Universalist, not Unitarian. The two denominations were separate until they merged in the 20th century. So it's pretty clear our church began as a Christian church. Now let's fast forward to the 1920s. Around this time, both Universalist and Unitarian churches were struggling with a debate between two belief systems, theism and humanism. To put it simply, theism means belief in God. Humanism is based not on the existence of a divine or supernatural God, but on the human capacity to reason and make ethical choices. During the 1920s, our minister was B.G. Carpenter, and his writings do include some humanist ideas. For example, he wants to find the church as, quote, a kingdom of just and human relationships. But humanism was not really emphasized in our church until 1930, when Clinton Lee Scott became our minister. Clinton Lee Scott was one of the signers of the first Humanist Manifesto, which was a document that defined the humanist worldview. We heard his words in the spoken meditation this morning. There is no salvation except within ourselves. In the 1950s, another minister brought new ideas about Universalism to our church. His name was Reverend Richard Nost. He had a philosophical kinship with a group of young ministers who wanted to revitalize the Universalist movement. They called themselves the Humiliati. The Humiliati felt Universalism was losing its distinctiveness because other Protestant denominations were placing less and less emphasis on the threat of hell. So what, they needed something else to make Universalists stand out from the crowd. So the Humiliati developed a theology called Emergent Universalism, and they defined it as a blend of functional, naturalistic, theistic, and humanistic elements. In 1946, Reverend Nost and three members of the Humiliati came up with a new symbol for universalism, which we have here on the candle table. The circle represents infinity and inclusiveness. The cross represents universalism's Christian roots. The cross is placed off-center to indicate that Christianity is not the only answer there's room left for other interpretations. Speaking of leaving room for other interpretations, I wanna point out the banners that we have here in the front of the sanctuary. Each one represents a different religion or philosophy. It makes sense because universalism started with the belief that a loving God would not send anyone to hell. So it stands to reason the Buddhists aren't going to hell the Hindus aren't going to hell. Even the atheists aren't going to hell. No one is going to hell. So that's another indication that universalism is truly universal. In 1961, the Universalist and Unitarian denominations merged on the national level. There was no Unitarian church in Peoria at that time, but in 1963, our congregation voted to change its name. So we are now the Universalist Unitarian Church of Peoria, 
and were part of the Unitarian Universalist denomination. Like other UU congregations, we draw our faith from many sources, and we affirm and promote seven principles. The inherent worth and dignity of every person, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, and respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. So that's just a brief overview of how our church's belief systems have changed over the years. I'll touch on that again later, but now let's look at another aspect of our church, social action. I don't need to tell you that we're living in challenging times. Challenging isn't even a strong enough word. Every day we hear about events that are shocking and appalling, hate crimes and terror attacks, such as the killings in Charlottesville and Barcelona, threats against rights that should be provided to all but are now in danger, blatant injustice, excused or ignored by those in power. Social action is very much on our minds right now. But this is not the first time our church has been through challenging times. And it's not the first time our congregation has been inspired to do something in response. In one form or another, social action has always been part of our church. We have a pretty solid resume of doing good works to make our community and world a better place. I'll just give you a few examples from different time periods. Just after the Civil War, a group of women in our church started a program called District Visiting. Volunteers visit, visited families in need and gave them groceries, coal, blankets, and clothing. In 1875, the same women's group opened a shelter for homeless women and children. Over the years, the home changed locations and adapted its mission to fit changing needs. It's now the children's home of central Illinois. During the First World War, an organization of business and professional women of the church made surgical dressings, bought bonds and thrift stamps, did knitting, made a benefit quilt, and made candy to send to the soldiers overseas. During the Depression, our church ran a cooperative grocery for people in the community. It started out in the church basement on Hamilton Boulevard, and it later moved to a rented building. Also in the 1930s, Clinton Lee Scott led a crusade against illegal gambling, which was running rampant in Peoria. The gangsters behind the gambling threatened Clinton Lee Scott's infant son's life. They tied one of his daughters to a tree and they burned a cross on his lawn, but he kept on fighting. During World War II, the Church Women's Tuesday Sewing Group made clothing for the Red Cross to send to families overseas, and they also made cookies and pies for the local USO. 
1965, our minister, Reverend Fred Lachane, participated in the Selma March to support the Civil Rights Movement. During the Vietnam War, the church allowed its facilities to be used for a draft counseling program that gave potential draftees information on their rights under the law. More recently, our social impact committee has coordinated a wide range of projects addressing social actions and social justice. Our children and youth help others through the Walking Our Talk program, and our covenant circles also do community projects. In addition to the social action programs that are sponsored by the church, individual UUs take action on their own or in groups. If you go to a peace walk or a rally for health care rights or women's rights or a protest against hate groups, you'll see UUs there. So social action has always been part of our church, but not always in the same way or over the same issues. As times changed, so did the needs of the community and the world, and our congregation adapted to help meet them. Once again, change is the basic law. We've seen how that's true in our church's belief system and social action. Another thing that's true about change is that it can be difficult. Change can make people uncomfortable, even when we think it's a good change. And when we disagree about whether to change and how to change, that can lead to conflict. That's just a fact of human nature, and it's happened in our church several times. In 1892, when our church was not quite 50 years old, things seemed to be going well. We had a beautiful building on Main Street with a tall steeple. It was said to be the largest and finest church building in the city. But in reality, according to the minutes of the annual congregational meeting in December 1892, the church was in, quote, an embarrassed financial condition. Money was so short that the congregation couldn't afford to rehire their minister, Reverend Marsh, or to have any minister in the coming year. Can you imagine us being in that position? Sorry, Michael. Sorry, Linda. We just can't afford you anymore. Good luck in your future endeavors. Well, as you can imagine, some people were upset about losing their minister. About two weeks later, on January 1st, several Universalists went off with Reverend Marsh and started a whole new church. It was called the People's Church. I don't know what became of the People's Church, but I do know that the Universalist Church survived after the split. In fact, by 1925, our church had more members than any other Universalist Church in the denomination. How that happened is a story for another day. The 1893 split wasn't the only time that people left the church because they were upset about a change. For example, when Clinton Lee Scott came, some church members didn't like his humanist ideals. In his autobiography, Scott wrote, I was not the kind of minister they could work with. They left the church and joined an organization congenial to their ideals. So once again, change led to conflict, but the church survived. 
How many of you remember the controversy about the arch? Several of you. Our church on Hamilton Boulevard had an arch at the front of the sanctuary, and for many years there were words painted on it, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Those words seemed fine in 1911, but by the 1970s, uh, Many people thought they were no longer appropriate and should be either removed or replaced. But other people felt the words should stay because they reflected our universalist heritage. It took 10 years and four congregational votes, but the decision was finally made to paint over the words and leave the arch blank. The decision was made democratically but it was a long and often painful process. Change is difficult, but the church survived. Social action can cause disagreements, especially when it comes to justice issues. Sometimes it's clear what moral and ethical position we should take. Other times it's not so clear. One of the biggest controversies in our church was over the draft counseling during the Vietnam War. The board voted to allow draft counseling to take place in the church, but some people, including the board president, disagreed with that decision. The whole story is too long and complex to explain right now, so I'll just say the controversy went on for weeks and resulted in a lot of turmoil in the congregation. In the midst of it, during a board meeting, the president asked for a motion to no longer allow draft counseling to take place in the church. When no motion was offered, the president said that with a heavy heart, he and his spouse were resigning from the church. That was Henry and Dorothy Sinclair, and they did resign. Several other members left the church as well. In the end, the congregation voted to allow draft counseling to continue. But the dissension over this issue echoed for a long time, causing our church for many years to shy away from issues that might be controversial. And yet the church survived. And as most of you know, Henry and Dorothy Sinclair came back and were pillars of our church for many more years. As time went on, the wounds left by this controversy healed, and we're now experiencing a renaissance of social justice work. So even in troubled times, there's always hope. In spite of all the difficulties our church has faced over the last 174 plus years, it has managed to not only survive, but thrive. How did we do it? How did we keep going? I want to suggest it's because of three characteristics of our church that haven't changed through the years. The first one is our core values. Core values are the underlying foundation of our church. As I see it, the core values of our belief system are the same now as they were in 1843. We just use different language to express it. The early Universalists said that no one goes to hell. We say every person has inherent worth and dignity. 
The core values that fuel our social action are also the same now as they have always been. No matter what current issues we're facing, we want to do something to help heal the world. The second characteristic is commitment. Commitment is a way of saying, this church is important to me and I want to help keep it going. Commitment is what kept the church going in the early 1970s when membership declined and the budget had to be cut very drastically. There was no money for a religious education director, there was no money, there was no money given to the UUA denomination, all kinds of things had to be cut. And there was no money for a custodian. So volunteers from the church, volunteers from the congregation swept and dusted the church, took out the garbage and cleaned the toilets. That's commitment. The third characteristic is community. Community is about the ties to, that connect us to each other. It's about caring for each other during the sorrows and celebrating the joys together. It's the feeling that we found a spiritual home, a place where we understand and support each other, where we can all breathe freely and be ourselves. Our sense of community is also expressed in our congregational covenant. One of the things we say in our covenant is that we will disagree respectfully. We're not promising that we'll never disagree. I mean, come on, we're UUs. We each have an opinion. We're, of course we're gonna disagree sometimes. But when we do, we can stay calm and listen to each other and try to understand each other's point of view. And then we can still disagree if we want to, but we do it with respect. Core values, commitment, and community. Even though many things have changed in our church over the years, those three have always stayed with us. So what does all this tell us? To me, reflecting on the history of our church is important because it helps us understand what we need to do in the present and in the future. History guides us to gain strength from our diverse beliefs find unity in our UU principles. Face the challenges of the world we live in and do the right thing. Live out our mission statement, embracing freedom, loving inclusively, growing spiritually, healing our world. May it be so for many more years to come. Thank you.